and this is the very young Arthur pulling the sword from the stone. And um, <laughs> it's that that's moved. Could you climb up the ladder and hold that? Um, I like trees to be characters in stories, and this is a particular very ancient tree which I drew in Richmond Park, and it emphasizes the, the youth of the young Arthur, really, the, the, the contrast between the two things. Next. And uh, it goes through various adventures of not just Arthur, but all his knights. This is a, an Irish adventure, hence the Irish castle. Next. Another adventure, again with the trees um, forming uh, strong characters in the, in the back of the story. Next. Who is this, Michael? Um, is it Lancelot? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's it's Lancelot. It is Lancelot. It's, it's running Lancelot. away. It's Lancelot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, next. That's um, Gawain. Gawain approaching the ho the um, home of the Green Knight, who we revisit in another book you'll see later. Next. This is Arthur here as, as an old man. He's got his grey whiskers. And it's one of these set-piece battles. But in these things, I always try to identify with or imagine what it would be like to be there. And if I had been there, I wouldn't have been one of the grand knights in armor. I'd have been one of the little foot soldiers in the middle. And the face right in the center of the picture, the only one looking back at the reader, is probably where I would be. It's just a little foot soldier, and he's the one with his head split open. Uh, next. And this is the end of the book, where the Excalibur, the sword, is returned to the lake. And you can just see a profile of the dead Arthur forming the landscape in front of the moon. Next. So we enjoyed ourselves doing Arthur, and we thought it would be good to do another book about another great British hero. And Robin Hood, of course, was an obvious character to go for next. Next. And we traveled up to Sherwood Forest, and I did drew particular trees. Um, this is the meeting of with Friar Tuck, with the, with the fat friar being carried across the stream. Next. And I, when we were in the forest, I drew specific, specific trees, the kind of trees that I would like to climb, and the kind of trees that would conceal the outlaws. So the outlaws are hidden in the greenery of the trees, and they kind of wear the forest like a cloak. And you can see the, the gaudy colors of the Sheriff of Nottingham's men coming along the, pa the path before they are attacked by the, the outlaws. Next. And here again you see the, the outlaws emerging from the greenery of the forest. Can I point out something there, Michael? Go I was When I was um, reinventing these outlaws, it was important to me, because obviously there were criminals amongst them, but there were also, um, in those times, it was people who had objected to whatever the tyrannical regime was. And very often they were persecuted people as well. They were people who'd been cast out. And I came across a group of people who were albinos. You'll see a lot of them have got white hair. And they were also part of a group which were cast out of villages because people didn't like them. People were suspicious of them. They thought they were, because they were in some way different. And sometimes they would have foreshortened thumbs and Things like that, anything, any excuse in a way to exclude people. And so they became quite a strong part of the band. Sorry. Okay. Next. Um, so having done a couple of um, chaps, we thought we'd do a, a lady. And uh, Joan of Arc was one we um, thought would be a great uh, excuse, really, to go to France and do some research. Uh, next. And um, here is the young Joan in the, in the orchard. And you can just see the apparition of the angel through the flickering leaves of the, of the trees. Next. Um, this is a grand procession of Joan at the head of her army coming along this narrow street. What was the town? Orléans. Orléans. And um, we were sitting in this street outside a bar one evening and um, just because the, the architecture has changed very little since that time. And uh, we got dragooned into helping a man move 
a very large piano through a fourth floor window in this narrow street with an arrangement of ropes and pulleys. He stood in the street and directed things, and Michael and I were up in the building pulling on the... It's all part of the research. Yes. <laughs> well, if I could just touch a little bit on Joan, because it is interesting. Um, yes, we wanted a, her a heroine, um, because we had done heroes, and we wanted someone who wasn't British, which was, which was important. Um, but also, she's a controversial figure, and I discovered that after I'd written it. I went to France, and I was asked by a French kid in some school, uh, Monsieur Morpargot. Sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> Monsieur Morpargot, uh, what are you writing now? But she did it in French. What are you writing now? And I said, I'm just doing a book on Joan of Arc. And she said, on Jeanne d'Arc? I said, yes. She said, but you killed her. <laughs> I said, I never. <laughs> She said, you did, you English, you killed her, you killed her. And I then went into, quite interesting in the modern Europe, to explain to her who, in fact, the English were at the time. I said, have you ever heard of William the Conqueror, Guillaume le Conquerant? And she said, no. I said, well, you should have done, because that devil came across from France and invaded England two or three hundred years before all this happened. And a lot of the soldiers who went back to France and burnt Joan of Arc for French. <laughs> there was a silence in the classroom. I like that sort of thing. Sorry, Mike. Um, and that's my cat on the uh, right-hand side. Is it? He appears in lots of texts. He appears oh, in yeah. lots of books. Uh, next. He wasn't in the text at all. That's why I didn't mention it. Um, well, it's just another... Uh, bloody battle scene, really. Uh, next. Wonderful helmet. I love the helmet. Um, but again, I'd like to bring you back to the aftermath of a battle. It's not all glory. There's a lot of um, suffering. And this is Joan um, with the dead and wounded. Next. And uh, here she's been captured and is uh, on trial for her life. And I've changed the colour in this. It's very restricted colour, so it's very much uh, a gloomy, sombre scene. Next. And this is the, the burning of Joan in the town square. And again, the architecture has hardly changed since those days. There's a legend about the burning of her, which is that um, a dove flew up out of the fire. Obviously, you know, these things, I'm sure are just stories, but it's in fact the story I took from, if you like, the legend of Joan that uh, made me write the story that I did write. So the end of the story you'll find at the beginning also. Next. Um, we'll have a series now of book covers of um, uh, various books we've done together. This is obviously The Last Wolf. My Scottish book. <laughs> Every great artist, like Mendelssohn and Morpurgo, have to have um, a Scottish something or other. And this is my Scottish symphony. And it, although it starts in Scotland, it also um, includes a journey across the Atlantic. So that the, on the jacket, the wolf's fur becomes the ocean. Next. Kensley's Kingdom. I think uh, many of you have seen this. Um, Michael asked me before he mentioned the story if I liked a particular Japanese artist called Hokusai and I said that of all the artists ever he is my favourite so he said oh I've got a story that you might be interested in so this is my homage to Hokusai um, and I was going to read you a bit from this this is a story who's read it? stand up <laughs> Give yourselves a huge clap. For those of you who haven't read it, be transported by the best first line ever written in any book. The rest may be rubbish. The illustrations are quite wonderful, but I don't know about the story, but the first line is stunning. That's all you're going to get. I disappeared on the night before my 12th birthday.
More? No? Oh, I can do more later. No, no, no. You read, read the book. Buy the book. <laughs> Next. Please. Sleeping Sword. This is um, the other Michael returning to the story of Arthur. Um, there's another excuse to go back to the Isles of Scilly, where Michael believes Arthur is uh, still lying, waiting for the call to come back I to help us all. I don't believe it. It's true. Um, we went, my wife and I, we just come back from Scilly, and seven or eight years ago, on arriving on Scilly, we were told by a farmer of a remarkable event. His tractor, driving down a field, the back wheel of his tractor had suddenly gone down into a dip. And he got out, went back, and he found a hole, and he'd driven into the top of a tomb. And he cracked the top of it, and down at the bottom there was this sword. It's true, don't look at me like that, it's true. A sword, a kind of a sheepskinny coat, and a mirror, you can see it in the museum on St. Mary's now, and it's 2,000 years old, and it was Excalibur. <laughs> and one of the islands is called? One of the islands is called, um, well, there's actually interesting names. One is called Little Arthur, interesting. But another one is called, which really irritates me, Foreman's Rock. <laughs> Next. There we go. I'm going already. What have we done? What have we said? Um, Toro Toro. Spain. Um, Spanish Civil War. Yeah, I, I like travelling a lot and writing about other places, other countries. Um, it interests me enormously. And this is a story I came across about the first village in the Spanish Civil War. For those younger ones here who don't know about the Spanish Civil War, in the 1930s, there was a, a very nasty civil war which went on, um, where brother murdered brother, families divided, families divided communities. There was a lot of murder and a lot of misery. And it was the first war, the very first war, that villages or towns were bombed deliberately to kill civilians. And I was shown, as I was walking through a cork forest in Andalusia, a village in the, in the valley. And this had been obliterated by the German Air Force, called in by General Franco, to obliterate this particular village, which was a nest of Republicans, and they didn't like them. And I walked through this village and felt the silence of it and the sadness of it, and I wrote a story about that event. Next, please. Gentle Giant? Yes, it's my version of really the Beauty and the Beast. When I was five, I had to be taken out of Beauty and the Beast, a pantomime of it, because it frightened me so much. And I always wanted to know what happened. <laughs> so this is my attempt at telling everyone what happened. Next. Um, little Albatross. Next. Albatrosses are being wiped out at the moment, hugely, by fishing. Some of you will know this. Um, the kind of fishing that they're doing means that um, the albatrosses see the fish gathering and gathering and the lines and the nets and they go down and they get caught on hooks and drown. And the real problem is that they breed, albatrosses breed very slowly. I think it's one chick every two years or something like that. And the number of adults being killed is growing all the time because of this fishing. Um, and I wrote this book really because of that. Here you can see the great nets pulling up um, the fish, but also catching some of the albatross. And, and other also things too. Turtles and dolphins. Notice the fisherman with the Chelsea colours on his hat <laughs> in the South Atlantic. Rainbow bear? Rainbow Bear, I wrote that, that was his fault. Um, he rang me up one day, he says, most of the things you see on the screen here are his fault. Um, he rings me up and says, what about, what about, what about? And I was, it was Christmas time. And as some fathers here will know, what you try and do at Christmas time is to kind of get away from it all. And I went up to my bedroom, turned on the television to try to see if something interesting was on. Well, there was something interesting. It was a documentary about, um, polar bears and for the first time in my life I saw polar bears swimming I'd never seen polar bears swim, it was beautiful, utterly beautiful and the phone rang <coughs> him, he says it's the other one, I said hello he said look, 
turn on the television. There's a really good program on about a polar bear. I said, I'm watching it, Michael. Put the phone down. Phone rings. Hello, it's the other one. What do you think? I said, it's fantastic. And then two days later, an extraordinary thing happened. I couldn't think what I was, because I promised him now a polar bear story. And I was wondering what to do. Looked out of the window of my house in Devon, where I live. And I live in the middle of the countryside onto a field of sheep. And there was a rainbow coming over. And all these sheep had gone different colors. Good, isn't it? <laughs> I thought, yeah, rainbow bear. There we are. Next. Farm boy. His fault again. Oh. Uh, true, you, you did. You asked oh, me to true. write a story yeah. about farming between. Don't, don't, it's true. Farming between the wars. You should know. You said you live on one. And uh, I'd always wanted to write a sequel to a story I'd written called War Horse, which is my wife's favorite book. She loves War Horse. And she has enormously good taste in books and men. <laughs> and she had said, and other people had said, you should write a sequel of it. And Michael's suggestion to write a story about what happened to Joey, the horse that goes to the First World War, what happens to that horse when it comes back onto the farm, what happens to its life, was, gave me the idea for writing Farm Boy. It's probably my favorite story because it's set, it's set on my farm, on our farm. And he cunningly, he always does this, look, 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 horses in the clouds. He's always doing this stuff. Good, eh? Can you tell the story about the, the picture, the painting of the horse in the village hall? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. There's a, a, what really got, one of the things anyway that got War Horse going was a, a painting um, which is not in the village hall. It's a painting which we bought off an antique dealer, but it says Topthorn. And I wrote the story about this and claimed in my story that the picture is in the village hall. So people now turn up to village hall and say, can we see the picture on the wall in the village hall? And it's not there. And then they know I'm a liar. The reason I asked Michael to write the story that <clears throat> followed on from the First World War is because I'd also written a book about the First World War and a book about the Second World War, and I wanted a third book to join my two books together, and I couldn't think of how to do it, so I asked the other one. And just exploit <clears throat> it. <clears throat> and they're all being republished next year. Next. Dolphin Boy. Now, that, I can't remember how this came Ah, out. that kept me. Um, that's set in Cornwall, but in a village I visit sometimes where there had been a dolphin called Beaky, which swam up into St. Moore's near Falmouth, and the children, <coughs> this is true, used to dive off the quay and play with it and play with it. It went on for years, and people used to come for miles around. So I wrote this story, called it Dolphin Boy, gave it to him to do, and what does he do? He says, yes, it's nice, but I want to change the place to St. Ives, because I prefer St. Ives. <laughs> so it's now set in St. Ives. Dolphin never been in the bay in St. Ives at all. Anyway, it's a lovely book. Lovely dolphin. There are lots of dolphins in the bay of St. Ives. <laughs> um, well, we put it back a bit in time, into the, I think the 30s, so that the colours would be um, more nostalgic and, and warmer, not the kind of lurid <laughs> blues which I use far too often, I'm told. No football strips. Mm, next. Not in this book. Um, now, how did this come about? Uh, best Christmas present in the world. Well, I've written a lot about the First World War over the years, and um, Michael and I were invited to Ypres. And the, many of you will know that Ypres was a, the site of a most terrible battle in 1916, 15 and 16, in which many, many British and French and Germans died, many hundreds of thousands of them. And whilst we were there, we asked the man who runs the museum to take us to this site where, at Christmas 1914, extraordinarily, on Christmas Day, they decided on both sides to have a truce. And it was started by the Germans, who waved a white flag in the trenches opposite and said, Hello, Tommy. Happy Christmas. And some of the British thought well, this was quite funny and so they waved the flag back and said hello Fritz and then the Germans said well why don't we meet and this extraordinary series of meetings went on all the way down the front between um, British soldiers and German soldiers French soldiers and German soldiers and in this particular instance um, in my story and in the place that Michael and I visited there was 
an hour or two, several hours of this meeting, and they had a football match. And back in the museum, I read a letter written by a German lieutenant, lieutenant, back to his wife in uh, Germany, saying, an extraordinary thing has happened. The most amazing thing has happened. It's the most amazing day of my life. We met in no man's land, the Tommies and us, and we played a game of football. I am glad to tell you, Liebling, that the score was Fritz 2, Tommy 1. <laughs> I thought, yes, you've got to write that story. So we, we did it. And it's a story of the letter. Yes, isn't it? Thanks. Which lay hidden in this in the desk. And it's this desk for many years until it was bought. Thanks. You'll have to to read the book to get to the end to understand what that really means but it's, a, it's very beautiful it's very moving by the time you get there you probably won't be able to see it through your tears by the time you get there yeah but it's, it's the old lady who was a young who was the sweetheart of the soldier who wrote the letter is in, um, in a home at the end of the story and uh, the letter is returned to her and on receiving the letter it's Christmas time outside in the garden outside her window is a uh, a spirit, I suppose, of the young soldier. Next. Billy the Kid. Um, we had an idea for this when we were doing the Robin Hood book. I remember we were in a back of a taxi, I think, going from Sherwood Forest to the castle in Nottingham. And uh, we were just talking about something, we, you know, what would we like to do next? And I said that really I would like to do a book, and I've always wanted to do a book about what football was like when I was a small boy, before footballers earned a fortune, when they would go to the match on the bus with the supporters. And um, I couldn't really get a handle on how to do it, but I thought Michael could because he sees a bigger picture. I see details. He sees the whole kind of thing. So... <coughs> I mentioned it to him while we were in the taxi coming from Sherwood Forest and Michael pointed out that he was a rugby man and had never been to a big football match so that was the first thing I had to persuade him to take his life in his hands and come with me to a football match not just a football match a Chelsea match even, <laughs> even more dangerous anyway so went up to Chelsea he paid for the ticket and went and sat and watched his first Premier Division football match I've ever watched, and it was an evening match. A Swedish team against Chelsea, so yellow against blue, and all these lunatics shouting and screaming. And everyone getting very excited because they kicked the ball into a goal. Twice. But they never did repeats. I noticed that. They just don't do repeats, which is very boring. So at half-time I said to him, um, fine, what have we really brought me here for? I've got the atmosphere and it's extraordinary. And it was. It's amazing. Utterly extraordinary. The kind of intensity of sentiment around the place and he said really what I brought you for is, is this because if you look up there in the director's box you'll see um, six or seven of these guys in scarlet coats and these are Chelsea pensioners old soldiers who are in retirement and living in a, a, a sort of like a hostel for old soldiers and he said they get free seats to come to every Chelsea match so I said well that's very very generous of Chelsea Football Club I'm sure they can afford it he said but also you must look the other end of the ground and there was a single solitary Chelsea pensioner sitting behind the, shed, uh, behind the goal at the shed end. And really what Michael did, he implied he wanted me to tell the story of that single solitary Chelsea pensioner. Why was he sitting on his own? He's a man of 80 or so. And I think what he wanted me to do was to tell his life and explain his love of football and how that had dominated his life. And so I turned him, if you like, into a Michael Owen. A young, an, an, a, he's an old soldier looking back at his life because he sees a bunch of kids playing football and it reminds him of how he played and the joy he had in it and the fun he had in it and the father who came back from the First World War who taught him to play football reminded him of his youth and then it reminded him sadly of going to the Second World War and becoming wounded and there are one or two illustrations going to come up now which I will read a little piece alongside it's this, is, this is the old soldier sitting in the park he's in his um, everyday uniform which is just dark blue it's not the splendid red tunic that he wears on special occasions 
watching boys playing football in the park where he played when he was a little boy. Um, so then we go back to Michael tells the story of the old pensioner as a young boy and he's very talented at football and eventually gets into the first team at Chelsea and um, because he's so young and he looks so young he gets given the nickname of Billy the Kid and when he starts scoring goals he's all over the back pages of the newspapers but unfortunately for him it's 1939 next so before the end of the season he is in the army and going off to take part in the Second World War. Next. But he's so mad about football that he plays football all the time and everywhere. This is on the troop ship on the way to North Africa, where they've organized a game on the deck of the ship. Next. They arrive in North Africa, straight into a battle, and within less than a week, he's captured and taken off to a prisoner of war camp in Italy. And here they've organized a game in the camp in Italy. Um, and it goes on. Um, eventually he um, escapes from the camp in Italy, makes his way back to Europe, back to England, uh, and is sent back then so to the war, which has now gone into Germany. And I'll read a yeah. bit from this now. We go to the next couple of pictures. So he's been sent back. I thought the fighting would be mostly done with him, with, with by now, and so it was. But there were still many, so many, so many wounded to look after, our lads and Germans and refugees. We were treating as many refugees as soldiers. I drove ambulances, swabbed down floors, made beds, buried people. That was when I first started to drink with the lads I never had before. When the work was over, we'd get together and drown our sorrows. The drink was cheap, and I discovered I had a bit of a taste for it. No more than that. Not then. Not yet. We'd heard about the camps concentration camps where they'd been exterminating Jews and anyone they didn't like but I don't think any of us really believed it you had to see it to believe it but when I saw it I still couldn't believe it I didn't want to believe it as we drove in through the gates of Belsen in our convoy of ambulances they came wandering towards us like ghosts walking skeletons some of them in striped pajamas some completely naked they were staring at us as if we'd come down from some other planet. The children would come up to us and touch us just to make sure we were real, I think. You couldn't call them children. More like little old people, skin and bone, nothing more. Hardly living. They all moved slowly, shuffling. A strange silence hung over the place. And a horrible stench. It was our job to do what we could for the sick. To get the meeting again. As for the dying, we were already too late. We buried the dead in their thousands, in mass graves. You didn't want to look, but you had to. Once you've seen such things, you can never forget them. They give out no medals for burying the dead, but if they did, I'd have a chest full. There was one little boy I found in his bunk. I thought he was asleep. He was curled up with his thumb in his mouth. He was dead. I wrote home, but I couldn't tell them what I'd seen. I just couldn't. When I left Belson a few days later in a convoy of ambulances, I was full of hate and anger, full of horror and full of grief too for the little boy with his thumb in his mouth. I drank every evening now, drank to forget. It didn't get any better when he got back um, to England. He found that his house had been hit by a flying bomb. This is just around the corner from where I live in Fulham. And uh, where the bomb fell, there was now uh, a 1950s block of flats and it's quite interesting going around many cities in this country you can see a row of terraced houses and then bang in the middle there'd be a building which is obviously much more modern and um, in parts of London you can actually trace the spatter of the bombs as they fell by the, the new buildings amongst the old terraces Next, as Michael implied the old um, Billy became um, a drunk, he just drank far too much and there's a large part of his life was then lost um, to drinking and eventually he finds his way to the hostel, the Royal Hospital in Chelsea the home of the old soldiers and he becomes a Chelsea pensioner and on his 80th birthday he's invited back to the stadium his picture is on the big screen his story is told in the, in the, the match day programme 
and he's given the match ball to lead out the team. And because the crowd know his story now, they all start to chant his name again. Billy, Billy the Kid, Billy, Billy the Kid. Thanks. Can I say something just before we finish? Yeah. Um, most writers love it when their books win prizes or get made into movies. That last one you saw has, was announced in the paper as being the favourite book of the New England football captain, John Terry. <laughs> Who cares about Booker? Um, this is also football related, and uh, there's a kind of backstory to this also, in that um, Michael wrote in the story, it's about a boy who's in a coma, and it's thought that maybe one of the ways of getting him out of the coma would be to arrange a visit to the hospital by his favorite footballer, who was Gianfranco Zola. And uh, Michael did the story. Before the book was published, there was a story in the newspaper of just such a visit by Gianfranco Zola to the hospital. And um, Michael didn't know that this was a regular thing that, that he did. It's kind of happy. Yeah, it was nice. Me, we had, therefore, to ask Gianfranco Zola whether he minded really being used in a book like this, since, in fact, he'd done the similar sort of thing a few months later. And anyway, he wrote back a very sweet letter saying, no, he liked the book a lot, but he had one comment to make about it. In the book, I apparently had written him speaking with an Italian accent. He wrote back and said, I would like that change because I speak English better than anyone else in the Chelsea football team. <laughs> Next. Ah. Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, Michael touched on this adventure in this story of King, King Arthur. This is the terrible Green Knight. The children who don't know this, you will absolutely love it. It's the most gruesome story you could ever possibly wish to read. It's utterly horrible. And it's really old. That's what's amazing. The notion that horror stories were invented last year, I forget it. These people knew. This is a very, very old story um, about a, a Green Knight who make the challenges to Gawain or to the whole Arthur court. You have one stroke to chop off my head provided that one year from now you present yourself at the Green Chapel in such and such a place and I can do exactly the same to you. And of course they all go, well? And a Gawain, because he's very brave, volunteers. And he gets, picks up this great big axe and he lops off the head of the Green Knight. And then he's got an entire year thinking about what's going to happen. And then it's very interesting what does happen. Read it. <laughs> this is where he goes to visit He's on a, on a journey, yep. and he puts up at a castle. At a castle, gets treated. and he has this. There's this wonderful lord in the castle, and the lord says, uh, "You stay at home. Uh, I'm going hunting. The deal is, whatever I kill, whatever I get today, I'll give to you, providing that whatever you get today, you give also to me." That was the deal. So he goes off hunting, and <laughs> it's wonderful. What happens is that he brings back a deer, and he throws it down, and he says, "Here's what." What I got, what'd you get? And here's the trouble. Gawain that morning had been lying in bed and the Lord's wife has come into his bedchamber for up to no good, as we might say. And I'm afraid she persuades Gawain to give her a kiss. So he gives the Lord a kiss. And when the Lord says, had you come by that kiss? He says, that wasn't part of the bargain. It's very good, it's very intriguing. Unfortunately, Gawain, before the end of the story, just as a, he gets a little tempted and he just <laughs> he puts his foot in it, is one way of putting it. And um, he gets punished. It's rather nice. <laughs> this is where he's off seeking the, the Green Knight. Next. They're great pictures. Wonderful. These mountains are actually in Canada, but I cheated a bit. Next. He meets all sorts of dragons and things on the way, as you do. Ah. Now, this is interesting, because this is a book you can't even buy yet. It shows you how completely uncommercial Michael Foreman and I are. Um, 
This is our newest one, isn't it? Yeah. Not out yet. It's called Beer Wolf. <coughs> Have we got some more? We yes, don't want to more do pictures. More. There he is. It's another portrait of Michael Morpurgo on a good day. <laughs> um, Anyway, I'll read you a bit of this. This is, some of you will have read, there's a minor poet called Seamus Heaney who wrote a version of this. And other people have tried, you know, they've all tried. This is the true version. I, I wrote it because I love the story. It, it, I told you the other one was full of horror. This is full of violence. So beware. I'll just read you a bit of it. And the language is taken from really from an old poem. It's almost a translation, but kind of adapted. The story begins as all stories do, before it begins. For there is always a mother before a mother, and a king before a king. In Denmark, all the great lords, those royal descendants of Skild, that great and good king, followed in his footsteps and stayed strong against their foes and loyal to their friends. The kingdom prospered. From their conquests, the land grew rich, so that the people flourished and were happy. Feared by their enemies, loved by their allies, the kingdom of the Danes became great and powerful in the world. Then the Lord Hrothgar came to the throne, son of the old king, Helfdin, great-grandson of Skild, and he was to become the greatest warrior of them all. Fierce in battle, he fetched back home more treasures from his conquests than had ever before been seen or even dreamt of in Denmark. But he was generous too, and a good father to his people, so that they obeyed him always gladly. Hearing of his increasing glory in battles, more and more warriors came to join him. It seemed to them and to him that there could never be an end to all his power and wealth. The kingdom was safe from its enemies, the people warm at their hearths and well-fed. Truly, it was a land of sweet content. To celebrate these years of prosperity and plenty, Hrothgar decided he would raise for his people a huge mead hall. It must, he declared, be larger and more splendid than any mead hall ever built. Only the best timbers were used, only the finest craftsmen. At Hrothgar's bidding, they came from all over Denmark to construct it, so that in no time at all the great hall was finished. It was truly even more magnificent than he had ever imagined it could be. Hierat, he called it. And at the first banquet he gave there, Hrothgar, by way of thanks, gave out to each and every person rings and armbands of glowing gold. No king could have been kinder, no people as proud and as happy. Night after night they feasted in Hirat and listened to the music of the harp and the song of the poet. And every night the poet told them the, that story they most loved to hear, how God had made the earth in all its beauty, its mountains and meadows, seas and skies, how he had made the sun and the moon to light it, the corn and the trees to grow in it, how he gave life and being to every living creature that crawls and creeps and moves on land or in the sea or in the air. And man too he made to live in this paradise. Around the warming hearth they listened to the poet's story, enraptured, enthralled, entranced. But there was another listener. Outside the walls of Hierat in the dim and the dark, there stalked an enemy from hell itself, the monster Grendel, sworn enemy of God and man alike, a beast born of evil and shame. He heard that wondrous story of God's good creation, and because it was good, it was hateful to his ears. He heard the sweet music of the harp, and afterwards the joyous laughter echoing through the hall as the mead horn was passed around. Nothing had ever so enraged this beast, as night after night he had to listen to all this happiness and harmony. It was more than his evil heart could bear. Anyway, he comes, and it's not a good night. <laughs> and really the whole story is of three contests, with Grendel, with his mother, who I, um, who, who I call the sea hag. Here she is and then the dragon of the deep. And Michael, I must say, draws these horrifically well. Difficult to pause on the pages sometimes. You'll want to turn them over. Thanks. Michael, I think we should have some questions. We have questions yeah, now? Yes. Okay. Yes, We've just got two more. We just yes, go. Sure. Um, next. That's the dragon. The last battle is with this dragon. This is the final one. Anyway, with Beowulf as an old man. 
Great. Okay, we've done. Okay. you've got questions uh, we've got two microphones I think uh, floating around so can you stick up your hand please and um, wait till the microphone comes to you and then speak clearly into it um, we've got somebody holding up private peaceful at the back there in a tactful sort of way so I think a well read child yes. <laughs> just behind behind it's over there why don't you speak yes. up anyway yes Speak up. That's it. Um, when you were writing Private Peaceful, was there any sort of ancestors or anyone that you remember that was sort of shot or was in the war that helped you write the book? No, I don't have any ancestor who fought in the First World War, so far as I know, uh, let alone got shot for cowardice or desertion. It wasn't that close to me. But I have to say to you that you live up here, every church you go by, you'll see a monument outside it, and you'll see, if not relations of yours, people who lived in the same place that you lived, walked the same streets you walked, went to the same schools you went to, who did go to that war and did not come back, which is what touches me so much, because you, hopefully, and certainly me, um, have a, an opportunity to live a, a full life, to fulfill what we are and how we are. Those young men, many of them, got to the age of 17, 18, 90. 19 and had their lives cut off short and these particular 300 it was all cruel it was all terrible don't get me wrong but these particular 300 I felt for greatly because they were shot by their own side and it was after trials which by no one's reckoning um, were fair and I'm glad to say that the government of um, Great Britain in delayed wisdom has finally pardoned them but it's taken a very very long time a question here in the white t-shirt the pink writing white t-shirt pink writing which is your favourite book can we ask you that first Michael for him have you got a favourite um <sighs> <laughs> it would be Billy the Kid um I mean it's a, it was the book that I really, really wanted Michael to do. And uh, it also, I mean, I, I grew up in the Second World War. And, um, you know, that's very much part of my makeup, yeah. in a way. So uh, I just felt very close to that in all kinds of ways. Yes. Also, the, 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 the old chap who I use as the model for the old Billy was a friend of mine called George, who was a gardener in Fulham and uh, so it's kind of a tribute to him as well because his story strangely enough was very very similar to Billy he was also in the in the ambulance corps he was sent to North Africa he was captured and unlike Billy he didn't escape he had the chance to escape but there were so many wounded soldiers prisoners he felt being a medical man he couldn't leave them so he stayed in the camp for the whole duration of the war there's another book in that. Have you got a favourite? Um, it's very difficult, really, because they, all the books you write, and I think Michael will confirm this, all the books you write are your own. They're really your own children. I mean, you, you make them. Uh, they're your own. And so you're, you love them. And you don't, I don't particularly love one more than the other. But I, I think the one you've written most recently is, for me, the one that uh, I love most. And I, I've just got a book which, again, you can't buy just yet, but it's called... Um, What's it called? Um, what the heck's it called, Claire? That book about Pettigrew. Oh, Singing for Mrs. Pettigrew, yes. Um, it's a book of short stories, which I really love putting together. I love writing short stories. I really love writing short stories. And I had two years as um, what they call children's laureate. And during that time, I had to go around all sorts of wild and wonderful places. And I went all over England and quite a lot of Scotland and to Russia and to South Africa and talked to wonderful people, lots of children, heard their stories, told my stories. And at the end, I wrote essays about what I'd done, and I put them in this book, and it's called Singing for Mrs. Pettigrew. I hope you remember the title better than I did. <laughs> um, somebody, there's a lady with a headband on, right at the end of the row, in a blue T-shirt. <coughs> uh, 
At what age did you start drawing and writing it, and what made you decide that's what you wanted to do? Um, I started drawing when I was a very small boy uh, during the war, and uh, my mother kept the, um, the village shop. And in those days, you got biscuits. They came in very big tins. They weren't in little small packets. They were in big tins, and the big tins were lined with white paper, which I could take out and use for drawing. And the, the tins were one foot square, so the piece of paper would be four feet long when you pulled it out, so I could draw very, very long pictures. So I drew pictures of crowds of people, um, railway trains, anything that was long. And um, I started the newspaper round when I was about 10 or 11. And one of my customers was a teacher in an art school, and he asked me to go along on a Saturday morning to an art class. So I just was lucky that I met this one man when I was very young who told me it was possible to um, be an artist. I had no idea what artists did for the rest of their lives, and I've spent all this time trying to find out. <laughs> but it was just a very fortunate thing. I was also fortunate in that I was not very good at anything else at school. So I was very focused. I had this one thing to concentrate on. Um, no, let's pass on to another one. That's I think fine. we, we did gives start another child a chance to answer. Yes, we did start a little late, so I think we're going to go on a wee bit. Can we? Yeah, have it's only. It's only who is it after? Is it Melvin Bragg? I think it is. Yeah, we yes. can keep him waiting. Yes. <laughs> uh, just this lady in the orange there. Yes. What gave you the idea for Adolphus Tips? Um. This is another book that Michael illustrated, which we haven't got the illustrations for here. I, I, uh, um, it's not because I love cats. That's the first thing. I don't. My wife likes cats. Um, I, I, I really don't like them. I don't trust them. They kill birds. But I recognize that other people adore them. All right? That's the first thing. The truth is, I wrote it because I went to a funeral. It's very strange, this. I went to a funeral in South Devon. I was having to give a talk, because it was a very good friend of mine who had died. And the family wanted me to give a talk about her in the church, and I was very nervous and quite upset and worried. So I did what a lot of men do when they're worried about something. I went to the pub, and I had a drink, and I had a meal before I went to the funeral service to back myself up, you know? Walked into the church, but as I was finishing my meal before I went to the church, I saw photographs in this pub, a place called Slapton in Devon. And there were photographs of American soldiers during the war. You could see that from their uniforms. And they were in this village, you could see. And they were carrying furniture around. I thought, well, what are American soldiers doing carrying furniture around? So I went to the bar. I said to the barman, what are American soldiers doing carrying furniture around? And he said, oh, don't you know? I hate people like that. So I said, no, that's why I'm asking you. He said, I can sell you a village history. That'll answer your... So I had to pay five quid, bought this village history. <laughs> Best five quid I ever bought, I have to say, because in it I found a story of about a girl about your age, but much nicer, who lived on a... <laughs> who lived on a farm, and apparently, in 1943, 3,000 people, including a family of this girl, were told to move out of their houses, off their farms, because the Americans were going to come to practice landing, because they were going to practice landing on the beach by this village, which they were going to in France a year or so later. They had to move out. They got six weeks to do it. The very last day, they were moving out. They piled all their stuff up on the cart. They were just about to move out. They weren't going to be allowed back for six months. Barbed wire was going to be around. They weren't going to be able to go back. And she looked around, you looked around, and you thought, where's the cat? And they lost a cat. And they had to leave without the cat. And the cat was called Adolphus Tips. And when she came back ten months later to her bombed-out house and her bombed-up farm, thinking that the cat must be dead, the first thing she heard as she opened the front gate was, Ew! And that cat had survived bombing, strafing, all sorts of things. So I thought, you've got to write its story. I think the last one here... Why do you like writing so much? <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Who muttered that question? Um, I'm not sure I do much. Um, no, it's, in, it's a good question, because it really asking me is, do you, do you like what you do? And there are bits of it I really love. I love dreaming it up in the first place. I get very excited about an idea. When I get an idea in my head, yes, 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 let's do that. And that's very often when I talk to Michael, and I think he's the same, because he does a lot of writing as well as illustrating, which I really hate. I hate it when people can do two things well. <laughs> anyway, he does that, and I know what I do, is I love the thinking up, the dreaming up. I love that bit. Then there's the other best bit in the world, which is when you receive, in an envelope, 
the first copy of your new book and it arrives at home and you open it up and it's got Michael thingy <laughs> and it's got a title and you look at it and it's got a wonderful smell and you think to yourself you clever thing <laughs> <laughs> I love the first bit the dreaming up the bit at the end when you get the book it's the bit in the middle the writing which I always find hard so I'm not going to claim to you I sit down with a joy in my heart and think oh goody goody I'm going to write a story today I think oh god oh god <laughs> I'm much like you I suspect when you have to do your homework but I'm really pleased if I've done it well Michael what's your take on it do you love every minute of it <laughs> um well, I'm conscious of the alternative, um, which, <laughs> which for me would have been a life as a fisherman on the North Sea, which is, uh, uh, I prefer. But I also love the materials. I don't understand how illustrators these days work on the computer all the time. I like the pencils. I like the paper, the feel of the paper, um, just the stuff, the colors and everything. I just feel very excited every morning waking up. I'm going to be playing with all this stuff again all day long. Can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to ask him a question? One, yes. <laughs> Which do you get most satisfaction from, making up a story or making up an illustration? Or would they be similar in terms of satisfaction? It's similar because I think the, the, picture I do, I, the pictures I do tell stories, really, and whether it's in words or um, right. just done with the images. It's, I'm just lucky to spend all my time with characters created yep. by you or by Dickens or whoever. Sorry, who? Sorry. <laughs> Robert Louis Stevenson. That'll do. Right, well, before they fall out, I'm sorry, I'm going to make myself very unpopular and draw this to an end. Can you come back next year? Definitely. Absolutely. I think same time next year, because we've got an awful lot more things we could ask them, I know. Can I thank you very much for those questions? They were great. The two Michaels will both be signing in the tent um, right behind this one. Um, can you please let them leave before you do so that they can get there and settle down? But can I thank you all very much indeed for coming. Can I thank Michael Thingy and the other one and hope they come back next year. Thank Lindsay as well, please.